Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. Well, we're going to dive right in. And uh, I want to get you, if you've got your Bible, you can turn. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, and we'll jump around a little bit as we go through the morning. But I, I want to also just say this. I don't know how many of you were here uh, two weeks ago. But can I just tell you, I am still just amazed and just freaked out by the amazing things God did two Sundays ago. Um, man, that was so incredible. If you were not here, we uh, baptized 31 people on that Sunday. It was incredible. Yeah, man. If you're one of those people, can you just raise your hand in the air real quick? Yeah, let's just. So, so incredible. And God is not done moving. He is moving right now, and he is moving all over the globe. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you this, even though I got out of the airport very late last night, uh, as, as soon as this uh, message is over, you're going to see me bolt out of here. If it's your first time, I don't want you to go like, man, that pastor doesn't like talking to anybody. Um, I usually sit and talk to everybody after the service, but my son and I are heading out the door even while you finish service, and we're going to go back to DFW Airport, and we're jumping on a plane to go down to the Rio Grande Valley uh, to join our team that is on mission there. And right now, this morning, our meeting at a church called Nueva Vida down in the Harlingen area. Uh, and can we just, um, well, I want to pray right now. I want to pray for God to move powerfully through all. There's about 20, I think there's 21 of us on the trip, um, and just pray for, for their lives to be transformed, but also that God would use them in an incredible way uh, on this mission trip. God, we just thank you so much for, God, your power and your spirit. And God, we know that your spirit is not depending on us. We are depending on it. So God, right now, we are so thrilled that we get to be here today. And God, you're going to speak. You're going to move. You're going to transform lives. Um, God, all over the world and including where um, many of our church family are right now down in Harlingen, Texas. God, we pray that you would just move powerfully even this morning. Um, through Pastor Jose Luis and the message that he's preaching there uh, this morning. And God, we pray for this upcoming week, um, both here, there, and everywhere, God, that uh, the people of God would be the people of God on mission for your glory and your kingdom. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series called Top Ten. Don't know if you picked up on that yet, um, but we are looking at the Ten Commandments throughout the summer. We know that we've got a lot of people in here, but we have a lot of people who will be online, and we're grateful for all that. We know a lot of people are doing trips and vacations, but I love that our church stays connected. So for you guys watching online, thank you so much. We love you. I'm going to give you a little bit of background to the Ten Commandments, just to, in case you're unaware. Um, so the Ten Commandments are going to be delivered to a guy named Moses. Most of us have heard some of his story, and it's given during a time where the Bible that we know does not exist. The instructions that God had given us in the written word are not a thing at this time. Uh, before the Bible and the written word, God revealed himself through several people and revealed himself to several people. One of them was a guy named Abraham that we often in church refer to as Father Abraham. And Father Abraham was told that from his descendants, God would create a great nation and that nation would bless the world. And Abraham thought that was hilarious because he and his wife were old and they laughed at God, and she got pregnant. So I just want you to know that if you laugh at God, you will have a child. That's just, that's in scripture. I think that's what that means. Um, uh, anyway, so they do have a baby, and that 
uh, baby goes on and we create a nation we know is the Israelites and they flourish among pagan nations. They flourish so much that they become a threat to the pagan nations around them. Uh, one of them, Egypt, decides to enslave the Israelite people and they hold them captive for 430 years until God raises up a Hebrew baby named Moses who looks like Charlton Heston and says, let my people go. And they do. The Pharaoh eventually, after many plagues, relents, and 600,000 Israelites take off on a trip. They end up rebelling and doing some things they shouldn't do, and it ends up taking them 40 years. And during this time, they are leading into this. There is no instruction given yet. There's no laws. There's no homes, churches, or schools. There's just the promise from God that he would do something through them as a nation to bless the world. But they're left with the question of how do we live? How are we supposed to behave towards each other? What are the rules for correct living? What is, uh, how do we resolve conflicts? Like they don't have any of this information. So Moses is going to gather them as a nation. And I want to read to you first from Deuteronomy chapter 4, because I want us to see, first of all, these rules, these commandments, these statutes of God, how important are they to our lives? Moses gathering the people of Israel says, because he loved your ancestors, he chose their descendants after them and brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great power to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you, to bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance as is now taking place. Today, recognize and keep in mind that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his statutes and commands, which I'm giving you today, so that, in other words, he's saying, I'm telling you this because it's attached to a promise. You need to understand why it's important to keep these. It is attached to something incredible, so that you and your children after you may prosper and that you will live long in the land your Lord God is giving you for all time. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to give you instruction, I'm going to give you rules to live by, but these rules are designed for you to thrive. If you follow them, life will go well for you according to the plan of God, and that is still true for us today. It doesn't mean that life is problem-free. It means that we are living it according to what God wants for our life. But we talked about this, Wes preached about this last week. I want to make sure we understand this. Rules don't create relationships, but they do enable healthy relationships. Every healthy relationship has a set of rules that govern it. It would be weird if it didn't. Like in my marriage, if I said, Crystal, I commit to you for all time, you and you alone. Also, I'd like to sleep with other people. That is a dangerous proposition. All she listens to is murder podcasts. <laughs> so if I disappear, you will not find the body. I promise you. She's been researching for 20 plus years. <laughs> but there are rules that I live with in the context of my marriage in order for that to be healthy and so that I survive. It would be weird if it didn't. Now, God is the same. He has rules so that we have a healthy relationship, but the rules don't create the relationship. God has a relationship with the people of Israel in Egypt before they ever get out. He has a relationship while the plagues of Egypt are playing out. He is in a relationship with them when he leads them to the Red Sea. And then after that, he brings in the rules. So the relationship has to come first, and then the rules will enable that relationship to be healthy. And so I want you to think about, when you think about the top 10 that God has given us is just ask yourself an interesting question. What if the 10 commandments are actually ancient rules for our present joy? 
What if they're ancient rules for our present joy, hope, fulfillment? That's how I want you to think about these. Now, I know that that sounds counterintuitive because when I was a kid, if I, my parents were like, you can, you know, we're going to go here and do this thing, I'd be like, great. And then my mom would go, now listen, here's the rules. And she was a fun pyre. She was sucking all the fun out of what I was about to do. Because I equated rules as limiting my joy, but that's actually not true. The rules and the boundaries, the guardrails of life that God gives us are actually there to maintain our freedom and maximize our joy. It's no different than if you went out onto the road and said, I'm going to drive as fast as I want in whatever direction I want. I don't care about any of the rules. Then you will die. Anybody with you will probably die. And you may cause the death of other people. It is staying within the confines of those rules that actually enables both you and the other people to live and to drive with freedom and joy as you travel. And that's the same thing that God is trying to help us understand. God is prescribing a life for us with him at the center that points us to the joy and the freedom that we have through him. And today I want us to see that in the second rule or the second commandment. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And I know that sometimes we can see that word, and I don't know if you've ever heard this story. You can Google it. It's a real thing. Um, this is what caused Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey to leave the Christian faith. She said, I could never honor a God who says he's jealous. But she's attributing an unrighteous level of jealousy, not a righteous level of jealousy. I am, I, listen, I, I don't want anybody else to have the relationship with my wife that I have. And that is a righteous form of jealousy. Okay? And God, in his infinite righteousness, can long for you in a way that he wants to share with no one else. And that's what he's talking about. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me. What he is telling you right now is that when you break the rules, we need to understand that we tend to think that I can disobey God and it only impacts me. And he is actually telling you here that it trickles down for generations. And we see that in the culture that we live in today. The trickle-down effect of sin in our life where it, is, it goes on to plague generations. There are devastating consequences, but there's also a great benefit for following. It says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my, what? Commandments. Now, as we dive into this, I will tell you, this is one of the commandments that's the most overlooked. As people go, uh, it's, very much, it's pretty much the same as the first week. Uh, we can just kind of ignore it. Um, also, uh, I don't have any carved images in my house that I worship. I mean, when I was a kid, I played with Transformers, G.I. Joes, or Barbies, or whatever you were into, but I didn't worship them, and so this isn't an issue for me. The reality is, if you understand this commandment, it's broken all the time. Let me define this for you a little bit. Breaking this means this, is when we define God by how we want him to be instead of believing who he reveals himself to be. That's what breaking this looks like, is that I define God for who I want him to be instead of believing who he has revealed himself to be. Here's what this sounds like in our world. Is, have you ever heard anybody say, well, my God is like, or maybe you've heard them say something like, I like to think of God as blank. This is a recreation 
of God, defined by you instead of defined by who he reveals himself to be. And listen, uh, no offense, it is idiotic that we think that we get to somehow define who God is, is so ridiculous that even Hollywood mocked it. In a great non-theological movie called Talladega Nights, <laughs> where one of the characters decides to lean into this, my Jesus, my God is like, and he says, I don't like to think of Jesus as a mischievous badger. I like to think of Jesus as an ice dancer who's dressed all in a white jumpsuit and does an interpretive dance of my life. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I'm formal, but also I'm here to party. <laughs> I like to think of Jesus with giant eagle's wings singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with an angel band, and I'm in the front row, and I am hammered drunk. Please nobody tweet the last few seconds of that as, as an independent thought from Jason, okay? This is a quote from Talladega Nights. They're even making fun of this reality. See, here's the truth. God is who he says he is. And our opinion is irrelevant. God is who he says he is. For me to redefine that would be so ridiculous is if I was to look at, at Chris Lawler here and go, Chris, buddy... I'm going to write a biography of your life, man. Uh, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Um, you're, you're gonna, in my biography of your life, you're going to be an astronaut, um, and uh, you're real bad at relationships. Um, uh, you're, you're, you, got, you love cats. You got like 18 cats. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Um, and, and you also are super big into interpretive dance and then that's always like stop dancing. Like it's the thing. And here's the thing. You're going to go, Hey Jason, I'm not really big on heights. So there's no chance I would be an astronaut. I'm actually pretty decent relationships here. I, I got, you know, I got a net. We locked into that marriage covenant. That's how you get the best ones. And you get, and I got her and you know what? I'm actually more of a dog person and I cannot dance at all. And I could be like, that's cool, Chris, but it's not super interesting, so we're going to go with the cattle of an astronaut one, okay? And that's who you're going to be, so I'm going to write your biography. And Chris's objection to that would simply be this. That's not me, right? And yet this is what we do with God, is that we believe we can define him however we choose to define him, and we can't. God is who he is. Our opinion is irrelevant, See, here's what that sounds like when we do it to God, is you get people that walk around, they go, uh, I can live however I want to because God wouldn't ever punish any sinner in hell. And I tell you, there's a lot of people that use that as a comforting thought to do whatever they want to do. But the unfortunate reality of that is that God is holy and he will not allow sin to exist in his presence. So if you die with your sin still attached to you, you absolutely do go to hell. But he doesn't want that for you. And so he has, from the very beginning of time and from the very beginning of his word, pleaded with you to let him cleanse you of your sin and unrighteousness so that you do not have to live and exist in an eternity without him. That's the truth. There are other people that would simply go this, I can kind of define God um, how I want. So God would never say for me that blank is wrong, whatever that is for you. God would never say that is wrong because weirdly, coincidentally, my God always agrees with what I love to do. He doesn't challenge me in anything. I don't see anything wrong with it, and my God shouldn't either. If I'm being honest, there are things that I kind of want to believe about God that are just simply not true, and when God doesn't act on them the way that I wish he would, I get disappointed in him. Like there's this part of me that goes, if I obey God, nothing bad will ever happen to my family. 
Or, or I'll never experience financial struggle. Or I believe that if I'm faithful to God, God will um, grant my kids great husbands or wife, and, and those people are going to love Jesus, and they're going to have a good job. I believe that God will... You know, anybody ever get those people that send computer viruses to you through text messages or emails? I believe that God will find those people and give them a virus. Not lethal, just something to really mess them up for a little bit and say, stop it. See, we recreate God in an image that we designed. That is idolatry. Let me give you a picture of this in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 32, this is a moment after the Ten Commandments have been given out. And I don't know if you know this, but Moses didn't just go up to the mountain once. He went up to the mountain twice. So he's gone up this time. He's up the mountain for 40 days spending time with God, and he's actually getting more instruction. Moses gets more than just the Ten Commandments. He gets a lot of God's word. And while he is gone for 40 days, the people that he had helped rescue out of Egypt, the 600,000 people, they are scared. They are scared because they're in the wilderness. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They feel exposed, and they don't know where Moses is. They don't know if he's dead. They don't know if he's gotten a better offer from a different nation. They have no idea. Maybe that guy got raptured. They have no clue. And so they're starting to panic. And here's what it says in chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. Actually, we're going to read through several verses, so stay with me on chapter 32. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he took the gold from them, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into the image of a calf. And then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement, there will be a festival in the land tomorrow. Again, they're scared. They have no defenses. Weirdly, though, most people think that they're requesting a new god. They're not actually requesting a new god here. They're not that dumb. They just got rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Instead, they build something. They want something they can hold, something they can interact with, something they can create an image that they can understand. And they want something that gives them what they're most lacking right now. A bull in their culture represented strength. And so they wanted something to represent strength for them. It says in verse 6, early the next morning they arose. They offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Now, in Egyptian culture, which they had lived in for 430 years, when you gave offerings to false gods, those false gods then guaranteed you certain benefits. So they're now treating the one true God the same way that the pagans treated their God. And it says, and you continue in the verses, the people sat down to eat, drink, and got up to party. What they're trying to do is they're trying to, because they are worshiping the strength of God, they're trying to get him to guarantee their protection. And in order to do that, they end up in a worship practice that was again followed by the Egyptians and the pagan cultures. In my translation of the Bible, it says to party. It literally means them people got frisky with it quickly. It got real sexual, real fast. Verse 7 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for the people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Let's jump to verse 19. I want you to see what this, what this leads to. As he, Moses, approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged. And he threw the tablets 
out of his hand, smashing them at the base of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and he burned it up and ground it into powder and scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Verse 21. Then Moses asked Aaron, Why did these people, uh, excuse me, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such grave sin? Can I just ask you real quick before I finish this? Have you ever been caught in your sin and decided to play the blame game? Has anybody ever just, I mean, they got you, and you know it. You know you screwed up, you know you lied, you know you did the thing wrong, and your first response isn't, I am so sorry, you are absolutely right, I have totally screwed that up. Instead, you're like, no, it was their fault. Well, that's what Aaron is about to do. And I need to remind you in these next few verses that Aaron is 80. Stay with me, it goes like this. Verse 22 Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people, he's going to point at them first, it's all those people, they are intent on evil. And they said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because, and now he's going to blame Moses, because this Moses, this is your problem really, dude. The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Verse 24, so I said to them, well, whoever's gold, take it off. And they gave it to me, and then I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. the dumbest verse in scripture. Aaron is not a middle school student. He is 80. His response was, I don't know, man. They gave me a bunch of gold. I threw it in a fire. I don't know how it happened. So a cow came out and because the cow came out of the fire, magically, we thought, well, we should worship it. And so they began to worship it. And they turn their affection towards a bull. And so I want to just go into this part of the message by asking you this. Where is your affection turned to? Is it turned to God? Is it turned to something else? See, when I say worship, here's what I mean. It's to love, to show admiration or affection. It's whatever you value the most. And yet I also want to tell you this, and something that we don't always understand, is that our world is great at worship. Great at worship. We do not have a culture that struggles with understanding worship. Let me give you a great example from one of the most shameful events of my past. I was a high school student, and I went to a New Kids on the Block concert. First of all, I heard some of those low-end groans. I don't need your judgment up here this morning. I said New Kids on the Block, and I'm pretty sure it was Mark that went, Uh, Listen, I went to a New Kids on the Block concert, and you might go, oh, surely he went with his girlfriend. Nope cousin. Uh, Me and Tracy went to a New Kids on the Block concert. Now, in my defense, I thought, okay, worst case scenario if I go to the New Kids on the Block concert is that there's roughly 50,000 teenage girls and only five new kids. At some point, I start to look like a decent option. (laughs) There was a strategy. That's all I'm saying. And so I'm going to watch New Kids, and uh, we go to sit down in our uh, seat, and behind us is a young woman uh, that is about our age and her mom. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a bummer. During the whole opening act, the mom sits there with her arms crossed, and we're like, oh, man, I feel so bad for this young lady. This girl's back there. She just wanted to come see New Kids. Uh, you know, and, and then her mom is not into it at all. And then after the opening act, New Kids comes out. We're hanging tough. It's the right stuff. Everything's going good. And then, right as they come out, as they start to lean into their first song, I hear, 
and screaming at the top of her lungs. And I thought, this girl has lost her mind. And I turned her out to find out it's her mother. <laughs> she is standing in her chair, screaming at the top of her lungs for all of the new kids, Donnie, Joey, John. I know their names, all of them. She lost her mind. It was a, I mean, she is crying, weeping. She's getting tired. She's having to sit. She's got her hands up, hands down, swaying. It was great worship. Just a terrible God. See, we live in that world. We know how to give something our affection. We just choose terrible God. See, the question isn't whether you worship. The question is what or who. Is the thing that you give your affection to, is the thing that you talk about the most, the amazing tableside guacamole at your favorite Mexican restaurant? Is it that you got to make some money, make some money, make some money? Is the thing you talk about the relationship that you are looking so desperately for or have found and you literally think that that person completes you? Is that your thing? Is it some Netflix show that changed your life or the latest movie that you're hanging everything on? What is it for you? And I'm not against any of those things. The problem is not that those things exist. The problem is that we hang so much on so many of them. See, what God wants to do in our life is infinitely greater than whatever it is competing with. So the second commandment centers on worship. And can I just tell you, by the way, when I say worship, I do not mean the first 20 minutes of the church service. I love worship through singing, but we have, as a, as a whole Christian culture, we've misunderstood what worship is as a whole. Like we, matter of fact, if you, I don't know if anybody in here is coming to church for the very first time today, but if you did, can I just tell you, I acknowledge that it's weird. It can be weird if you've never been in church. Think about any other place that you go into where everybody just stands up and starts singing. It's like, a, it's like, a, it's like musical broke out and you walk into a room and you're like, I don't know, I came, I thought I was going to encounter God. Next thing you know, everybody's singing and they're singing songs that are strange to me. They're singing a lot of songs about blood and some lamb and apparently there's a lion and then a bunch of people are bathed in blood. I don't really understand what's going on. It's crazy. And they've got some hand gestures and I've never seen anybody use most of these before. It, like I, I printed these out. It's Tim Hawkins talks about this, a Christian comedian. It's the, it's the flap your elbows guy worshiping. Just singing like this, carry the TV, big screen. Yeah, I once caught a fish this big. Hold my baby, Mufasa. Dueling light bulbs. Seen this person in worship? Yeah, yeah, heartburn. Pointer. Hatchet, school's in. <laughs> Village people, Rocky, touchdown. Like, that's all of them. <laughs> like, you can, you can be sitting there going, like, is this what that is? No, can I tell you, worship is so much more. And don't get me wrong, I love all of that. I'm, we, we laugh, but I mean, I, it can be a strange experience if you think that's the whole of what worship actually is. 
See, worship is designed for so much more. It is something that we anchor our life to. And so I want you to take notes. The first thing I want you to learn about worship is that the, the whole reason the second commandment pushes this so heavily is it's there to fuel hope. Biblical worship is identifying in our minds, in our hearts, that God is the Almighty, that God is so powerful and supreme above all things, that He is the Creator God. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every sin that you've committed. He made a way for you to be redeemed from that sin through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He could embrace us. And that is the hope that we hold on to. And because of that hope, and when we realize that, when we understand that, it brings worship out of us. We begin to reflect worth and worship back to God because when we realize all that he has done for us, it begins to ooze out of every part of our body and every aspect of our life, everything we can do to glorify his name. See, God doesn't want us to worship idols, and it's not because God is insecure. God is secure on his own without our worship. God is not insecure. Instead, what he is doing is helping us to understand the insecurity that rests in every other thing we would put our hope in. It is not in his insecurity that he asks for our worship. It is in our insecurity that he asks for our worship, that we would anchor our life to something so much better. He knows that every other thing we put our hope in will fail except him. So when we worship or we anchor our, our hope to a job or finances or relationship or how people view us, he knows that it will not last. He knows that it will fail us. And the problem is when we do these kinds of things, when we, when we anchor our hope to something else that we think we need that is going to be fundamental in our life, if you, if you anchor your life and say, I have to have this or I cannot have hope without it, and that thing is not God, it is a form of idolatry and it leads you to some false beliefs. If you believe that you need prosperity, I mean financial, health, wealth, and, and that kind of stuff, that kind of prosperity... If you believe you need that to be happy, what you do is invent a God that guarantees you your best life now. And what's going to happen when life is not always perfect for you is that you're going to be filled with anxiety, you're going to be filled with depression, you're going to be filled with so many challenges because, in, because you woke up believing in a God that said, my life is going to be perfect if I follow him, when the reality is that God said, you need to wake up ready to go into a battlefield. If you wake up recognizing a battlefield, then you wake up getting ready for war, knowing that the world is going to be a challenge. If you wake up thinking that following God is going to always bring me nothing but good, you are going to be a person filled with anxiety and depression because it will not hold up. The Bible says in this world you will have trouble. We have to prepare for that. If you believe that you need to see yourself as a good person, then what you'll do is you'll invent a God that is angrier at everybody else's sins than he is at yours. If you believe that you need sexual freedom to have sex with whoever you want with and hookup culture and all that stuff, you will invent a God who wants you to be happy but does not want you to be holy. See, we understand that our hearts were created to worship. We are spiritual beings first and have a physical body. And the spiritual being part of us craves God and craves worship. And when we don't worship God, our heart will quickly attach to something else 
to worship, something to find hope. And so the second commandment forbids that for the purpose of guiding us to the only thing that can really provide hope. See, this is how a lot of us tend to view our life. We take our life and say, I've got to fit it all into these little compartments. So I've got kind of the stuff I do for fun. I'm going to put video games and television and movies and vacations and all that stuff right here. I got to put my job right here, make sure that's there. I got to put my relationships right here, but I got to make sure that there's a line in the middle because if you're a little kid and you have a, a bunch of food on the plate, what is the number one rule? Foods don't touch, okay? So I'm going to put God right here in a little area, uh, maybe my, my financial life, my physical health, all that stuff, but I got to make sure it's all in these little compartments and make sure that none of it touches and that's what a lot of our lives look like. We ask God to coexist with other things that we think fill us up. And can I tell you something? God is not going to force you to worship him, but I want to also tell you this. While he will give you a choice, God is not going to settle for anything less than complete and total submission to him. See, the truth is it doesn't look like that at all. The truth is that the plate is Jesus. He is the center, foundational element of our life. And everything else in our life fits into him. My financial life, my work life, my relationship life, my emotional health, um, all of the, my, my free time, every bit of it fits into Jesus. And yet none of it is foundational to my life. So there are times when maybe you're in a time where you have been unemployed for months and months and months, and that part is not on your plate. You still have hope because the foundation is Christ. Anybody in here ever been broke? Yeah, there we go. Everybody. And at the time when that doesn't exist, if the foundation is Christ, I'm still fulfilled and have hope, even if that segment of my life is empty. Maybe you've been a person that's been longing for a relationship that hasn't happened, but even without it, I can still be whole and filled with hope because the foundation of my life is Christ himself. That's what's supposed to happen. He's the foundation. Everything else goes on to that, which means that in all of those things, I can now offer all of those things as moments and parts of my worship where my job is not just a job that's trying to fulfill me. My job is rooted to Jesus, and I can have my job be a function of worship where I live out my faith in my workplace. And my relationship is lived out according to my Father in heaven, which becomes an act of worship. And my financial life is lived in the instruction and the guidance of the Lord. And so it becomes an act of worship when it's all founded on him. It's so important that we get that. But I have people that will come to me and say, Jason, you don't understand. I could never trust God to be my foundation until I fully understand everything about him. You write this in your notes for a minute. Let God be God. I'm not saying you shouldn't endeavor to know him. You should absolutely endeavor to know him in every way that you can. Dig deep into his word to know him more. But can I tell you that you will dig for the rest of your life and you are still going to come up woefully short of understanding everything about him. Because he is greater and bigger beyond anything that you can imagine. There are things that I can explain the theology of to you right now. Things like uh, predestination and sovereignty and prayer and heaven and hell and the end of time. And yet I can also tell you I do not fully understand how all those things work. Because God is big and I am not. I know this about me. I am an idiot. I declare that to you today. 
I'll also declare I'm not the only one in this room. I don't know. I couldn't find my keys this morning. Anybody ever done that? Anybody married to somebody who always does that? If you can't remember where your keys are, why would you expect your brain could comprehend all the God stuff that exists? Here, here's what I want you to understand. The wisdom of God is like a vast ocean. And my brain is like a courtesy cup that you get from a movie theater. I would never expect the ocean to fit into the courtesy cup. He is greater than any of my understanding. Let God be God. Do not try to reduce him to a size that fits inside your head. There are people that say, well, Jason, I want an explanation. And I understand that, but can I tell you what God has given you is revelation. There are people that demand answers, and while God has given us an awful lot of answers, more importantly, he gave us his presence. And I want you to understand that. Let's look at a second thing about worship. Worship gives us a complete view of God. As I told you earlier, the bull symbolized God's strength, but God cannot be reduced to a single attribute. Idols conceal more than they reveal. And that was the problem with idolatry. The Israelites go on and worship a bull for one day and wind up in a full-blown orgy. That's what happened. The problem is that only thing they're focused on is his power, and they were not focused on his holiness. You cannot minimize God into a single attribute. Healthy spiritual growth comes from seeing and knowing all of God, or we grow spiritually deformed. Here's what I mean. If your God is holy and just, but not compassionate and gracious, you will be a judgmental person. If your God is gracious, but not just and holy, then you will treat sin casually, and it is devastating to your life and others. If your God is not sovereign, then you're going to get worried every time something goes wrong. If your God is sovereign, but not loving and compassionate, you're going to argue theology, but rarely share Jesus with anybody. If your God is just, but not a loving father to you, then you'll always think he's bad at you. If your God is not beautiful and all-satisfying, then you will serve him, but you will serve him begrudgingly, and you will not seek him because you do not desire him. And if your God guarantees prosperity, then when things go wrong, you will lose your faith. You'll be disappointed when you struggle, and you know what else will happen? You will never experience the sweetness of his presence and his promises during the pain. You'll never get to experience the beauty of watching God take something painful and turn it to good. See, the only place that we see a full picture of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture tells us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word image there is literally the translated the word icon, that he is that representation the image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, I love the way it says it there. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. If you want to see God, you will see him in the stories of Jesus Christ. If you want to see God, you will see him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to see the grace of an almighty God, you will see it on the cross. If you want to see the power of an almighty God, you will see it in the empty tomb. If you want to see the compassion of of our great God, you will see it in the healings that he performs time and time again and in the salvation he brings to broken and lost people. You see it in the story of Jesus. So I would tell you this, get to know Jesus. 
That's why we encourage you to get into a connect group and dig in. And I will tell you, when you first start to dig into the Word of God, it can be uncomfortable. Anybody ever read something in the Bible and go, I did not like that? It can be painful at first. It's a little bit like this. Have you ever gone to a movie in the daytime and then walked out into the light? What do you immediately do? The whole squinty thing. You have a, you have a choice in that moment. Here's your choice. It's way more comfortable back in the darkness. So you could simply walk back into the darkness and live there. Or you can allow for the beauty of what God will do if you'll let him adjust your eyes to the light. Don't crave the darkness. Embrace the discomfort of understanding the light because it leads us to great God things. God's light and truth will challenge our idols. They will challenge our sin. But if you stay in the light, it will wow your life in a way that nothing else can. There is a vacuum inside of every human person in the shape of the God who is revealed in the Bible through Jesus. The last thing I want to tell you is this. We worship to display God to the world. Christianity in the first century was a very unique faith. It was the only faith of the ancient world that didn't build statues to worship. Most of those didn't come till much later in the Christian world, in the Crusades and things like that. The apostles did not once build a statue to represent Jesus somewhere. Do you know what the apostles instead did all throughout the first century? Preached. Because our God was never trying to be displayed in images the way that every other false God was. Our God has from the beginning of time declared that he would be revealed not in the images but in the word. That's why knowing the word is so vital to our lives. And so that's what the apostles did. They preached. They preached because God chose to reveal himself in the word. And yet I want you to also get this. Because somebody goes, so is there no image of what God is doing on the earth? So many. So many. But here's what I want you to think about. In the first century, kings would build statues. They would create images to declare that they ruled over an area. And they would literally say, we're going to make this. You see it in Nebuchadnezzar, lots of stories in Scripture. We're going to make an image to declare my rule and reign over this place. And with that thought in mind, I want you to look at what the Bible says all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, and God is talking to himself in the terms of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, then God said, let us make man in our what? Image. According to our likeness. See, we're not looking for an image to represent God for us. We were designed to be an image representing God to the world. His imprint, his fingerprint is on us. Jesus is the perfect image of God. We are the image of the power and the presence and the mission of God lived out in broken lives. We are the picture of what he can do in any person. So our worth is not found 
and what we pursue, but it isn't whose we are and whose image we were created to bear. No matter how messed up we are, he is not embarrassed to call us his image bearers. He claimed us and reclaimed us. He redeemed us. He loves us in a way that we cannot possibly understand. So we worship him, but we don't worship him simply with singing in a church. We worship him by living in our lives to bring him glory and praise. We bring glory and praise to our great God. And because of that, we have hope that will not fail. We have a joy that cannot be destroyed. We have a peace that passes all understanding when we understand to make no image to replace the hope we have in God. Let's pray, church. God, thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you've entrusted to us the beauty of the gospel, that we get a chance to share it with the world. And God, I know that we by no means are any sort of perfect representation of who you are. That's Jesus. But God, I pray that our life would be lived as a testimony of what you can do, what it means to bear the image of God and to live a life that glorifies our God and King. God, I pray that you would challenge every single one of us today to live that life to your praise and your glory. We love you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.